Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, an extended eviction moratorium gives renters more time. A look at how HBCUs are providing student debt relief and the role of the black church on voting rights. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Renters struggling to make payments due to COVID-inflicted hardships are once again safe from possible eviction. Just days after the federal moratorium's expiration and much protest on Capitol Hill by progressives, President Biden empowered the CDC to extend the moratorium in more limited terms through October 3rd, citing the Delta variant as a game changer. The courts made it clear that the existing moratorium was not constitutional. It wouldn't stand. In the meantime, what I've been pushing for and calling for is we have billions of dollars that we've given to states to provide for rent and utilities for those people who can't afford to stay in their homes because they can't, I'm in an apartment, they can't pay their rent. And so we're urging them to distribute those funds to the landlords. Problem is, the Supreme Court already ruled such a move could not happen without congressional approval. This extension occurred without that approval. What does that mean for Biden and for our economy? Today's roundtable weighs in, and I'd like to welcome clinical professor of law at Duke University, Jesse McCoy, journalist Courtney Napier, and professor of history and political science at North Carolina A&T State University, Dr. Arwen D. Smallwood. I'm going to open up with you, Jesse. This move essentially empowered the CDC to act rather than cinching congressional approval. What kind of legal bind does this possibly leave the president in? Well, I think it's important to note that the president is trying to read the tea leaves. So the Supreme Court hasn't necessarily said that it's unconstitutional. It was actually a lower federal court judge. And what the Supreme Court has heard is the argument about whether or not the stay should continue to be imposed or if it should be lifted. Uh, in this situation, what he has seen is that there was basically a 5-4 split with the more progressive justices saying that the order should remain in place uh, and the other justices saying that it should not. The actual swing vote was Kavanaugh, and, and Kavanaugh's vote was followed with an explanation. That explanation was that because the moratorium was going to end on July 31st, he didn't feel like the stay needed to be lifted. So they kept it in place for July 31st. At this point, we're beyond July 31st, and Biden knows that if the merits of this case actually go to the Supreme Court, he's probably looking at a defeat uh, when Kavanaugh switches back to be with the conservative justices. So what he's trying to do is offset any potential harm that may come if this eviction uh, moratorium is lifted. However, what we have established is kind of a cumbersome moratorium that is technically in effect until October the 3rd, but only applies in counties within the United States that have either a high or substantial COVID transmission designation. Um, the benefit right now is that I think in North Carolina, all but about two counties have that designation, uh, those two counties being Hertford and Bertie County uh, that don't. 
uh, but everyone else is covered, and the government is going to do a seven-day evaluation. So every week there's going to be a measure to see if we still fall in that high or substantial COVID transmission lane. The fear here is if at any point in time we fall below that standard, then the moratorium goes away. Wow, that's sort of um, hoping for a good outcome or just hope, hoping that we qualify so that people can have that extension. I don't know which is worse, but, but Courtney, uh, it is good news for renters and should be good news as well for landlords because they're supposed to be the ones getting these funds. But the problem is this hasn't really been about money available. The American Rescue Plan has been available for a long time, but only about $3 billion of the $47 billion has actually been spent. So What's the situation here in North Carolina? How is how is Governor Cooper responding? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And what Professor McCoy said is really pointing to a lot of the issues. It's a very cumbersome situation that we found ourselves in that have very, very small margins for who can qualify. And so what we're what the situation we're in is when the pandemic started under the Trump administration. We've, we are thrown into chaos and we've been building this plane as we're flying it in the air. And in the Trump administration, we started with a paper airplane. There wasn't a whole lot there as far as direction for anyone involved, whether it's organizations, whether it's uh, municipal governments, state governments, et cetera. And so we're in a situation where we have pressing need, we have unprecedented safety issues, we have the money, but we don't have the infrastructure to get it out to people. And we're also dealing with a lot of people who are dealing with this system for the very first time. People who are finding themselves housing insecure, who have never been in this position before, and really don't know how to navigate all the different levels of a very complicated system that has been too complicated for a very long time and affecting families, especially black and brown families, for decades. Um, but now, much like we had with the IRS and getting our tax returns, we have a flood of individuals looking for help all at one time, and we don't have the infrastructure to support them. So for you, it's about infrastructure. Dr. Smallwood, let me ask you about the impact on the economy, the potential impact, especially if the assistance dollars just continue to sit. I mean, the infrastructure wasn't there. The infrastructure still really isn't there. So what's going to change in the next couple months? Well, we, we again, we hope that, um, that that will alleviate itself. I mean, at the end of the day, what um, everyone's describing is the fact that there wasn't really a plan to distribute the funds. Uh, we understood the problem because people couldn't go to work because the virus kept people home and um, to avoid being sick. And then, of course, people didn't attend businesses, whether it's the restaurant industry or anyplace else. And so you have, but I think part of this, and I'm going a little afield, but part of this is the fact that we are existing, this pandemic is still affecting people unevenly. And so uh, people who are at the higher income level who can uh, work from home, uh, you know, using technologies, uh, they're in a much better position. And so I think like with a lot of things, when we talk about, you know, even our all volunteer army, I think that people, you know, if you don't feel it, if you don't understand, you know, what people are going through uh, in our modern society, unfortunately, you know, people don't think that it's important. And that gets to the split in Congress and why we are having so many 
problems with trying to get this money out to the people. But we certainly have to create an infrastructure that can get the money to the people who really need it, and we know that that need is there. It's definitely going to have to happen because it gets into the hands of those renters in order to get into the hands of the landlords so that they can pay um, their bills as well. And, and this has got to have... We can't just keep extending moratoriums and so forth because I would imagine this is... I mean, what's this really doing to the economy, Dr. Smallwood? Well, at the end of the day, um, most people will have to... You know, you have to have security. And again, I talk about things in terms of a social context, in terms of our... Um, our communities and how our communities exist. If we, if people can't ha can't have secure housing, it goes back to Martin Luther King and the Poor People's Campaign. If people can't have uh, secure housing and they can't have jobs that pr provide them with, you know, a livable, you know, situation, uh, then of course, like I said, everything feeds into the economy. For the economy to grow, we have to have workers. The workers have to be stable. They have to have, you know, a, a secure home environment where they can actually go to work and focus on their jobs. And then the, the economy rolls along. It moves around. People are consuming. You know, they, they go out to restaurants. They purchase items. But all of that really comes back to um, the workers being secure. And I think we've moved away from that in recent, uh, you know, in recent years, decades, actually, uh, that, you know, again, top heavy, but the bottom where the people actually do assemble things, put things together, and really kind of drive the economy uh, we don't seem to, as a nation, uh, understand, you know, the crisis that they're in and support them in the way that, you know, we should. Well, we're definitely at a, a desperate point. I do want to ask about the HOPE program, Jesse. Here we have this rental assistance program set up uh, to help people who are having difficulties, but it's being said that there are people who are not applying for it, but then when they do apply for it, about one out of three uh, people are, are getting rejected. So, so where's, where's the holdup? It's, it's, it's infrastructure, but also the rejection. Does something need to happen with that? So I think the infrastructure is a big piece. And just to give context, so we started this CDC moratorium in August of last year. Um, we didn't have any kind of budget for rental supplementation until January of this year. So we're talking several months that people were continuously accumulating more rental deficits, more associated fees. On top of that, the, even the agencies, including NC Hope, who received uh, the funding and are charged with uh, dispersing the funding, they didn't get guidance from the Department of Treasury till the end of February. So they are always fearful of the back-end audit uh, or being told that they did something wrong uh, that might impact their ability to get future uh, grants and be able to provide these services. So. Essentially, we've been looking at people who have been trying to administer funds since March. And the bottleneck in traffic for all the people who need the services, uh, on top of the fact that the cumbersome requirements for different documentation and forms for working people, that can be a lot. Uh, and so when people don't have those forms or if they don't respond in a certain amount of time, that's going to yield a higher rejection rate. But it is important for people to know that nationally there are $47 billion earmarked for rental assistance. So it's important. If you are in an area that does not have um, NC Hope or does not have a municipality that's already participating in the program, please call 211 and find out what resources are available in your area because obviously the money is there.
And it's there, and uh, people, some people aren't necessarily asking for it. So um, I would just like to add to what you shared, Jesse. If you or someone you know is behind on rent due to COVID economic impacts, you may qualify for assistance. Information on the HOPE program, that's the Housing Opportunities and Prevention of Evictions program, is available online at hope.nc.gov, or you can call 888 888- Nine two seven five four six seven. This past week, North Carolina Central University cleared over $10 million in outstanding tuition, fees, and summer session costs for more than 5,200 students. They join many other HBCUs who have used federal money from the American Rescue Plan and CARES Act to relieve the debt burden for students. So far here in North Carolina, those universities include Livingstone, Shaw, Elizabeth City State University, Johnson C. Smith University, Fayetteville State, and St. Augustine. University, which canceled $8 million in student debt. HBCUs actually received $2.6 billion of the $40 billion COVID relief dollars set aside for higher education. That's about 6.5%. According to UNCF, HBCUs make up only 3% of the country's colleges and universities. However, they enroll 10% of all African-American students and produce almost 20% of all African-American graduates. Courtney, how are HBCUs showing up for their students in the midst of this pandemic? Well, they are really sending a beautiful message to the rest of the country about how um, administrators and institutions can support students and how that can have a ripple effect into our community. And so, yes, we see debt being cleared, in all of these HBCUs, which is beautiful, but I also want to point out that HBCUs have done an incredible job supporting their students and the health of their students and faculty throughout the pandemic. There have not been the major breakouts and issues that we've seen in other larger systems like the UNC system, like NC State and Duke, that are happening at HBCUs. And I really think they should be coming to those administrators and asking, how do you create a culture of collective care and responsibility to create such a healthy um, learning and work environment. And so I really want to congratulate them on that, as well as recently the USDA was able to give over $21 million to land-grant universities, many of those are HBCUs, to help black farmers. And so the beautiful thing about HBCUs right now is that they are allowing the support to flow through their institutions and not just bottleneck in their institutions. And that is a message that the rest of the country needs right now. That's You're absolutely right. They're showing true leadership and, and are a great example of, you know, how you care for that client and also how you um, extend what you have to them. And, you know, the, the, the numbers speak for themselves in terms of how many graduates come out of these institutions having come in at a deficit in many ways, but then certainly uh, contributing to society. Dr. Smallwood, um, this will help those who are currently enrolled. And Forbes magazine reported this is a racial wealth gap game changer. But, but how much is it really a, a game changer? Well, I'm fond of saying that uh, many African-Americans, particularly those who come from disadvantaged and poor backgrounds, and I would count myself among that. I grew up in a first-generation family, uh, very poor from Bertie County. Um, 
that uh, we've been able to use sticks and stones and, and really make things, you know, really create things. And HBCUs have been a major part of that in terms of uplift, really from the time of slavery in terms of assisting people. But gifts that we're getting, like the McKinsey Scott gift that was given to North Carolina A&T, uh, we've been, you know, trying to support our students, um, give them scholarship money, support them in, in their endeavors. And again, uh, yes, you know, we want to make sure that our students are not only academically prepared to be competitive uh, in the new workforce, but we want to help them, particularly first generations, because I think all HBCUs have a percentage of their population uh, that is first generation. You know, and certainly coming from a disadvantaged background, whether it's an urban background or a rural background. But and I don't want to make the mistake. I don't want to make the mistake, um, actually, of, of assuming, well, you know, all of these HBCUs are doing their part to help out in an emergency. And now, based on that, we have a racial wealth gap change. The reality is these schools have been financially, many of them, anemic for a long time, and the emergency relief funds come in to, to try to even them back out to that anemic position. So, so how much has the racial wealth gap changed? For this graduating class and, and for a, few, a couple of others past, it's certainly going to help, and that is greatly appreciated. But there's more, I would say, that needs to be done in order to try to, you know, get to racial wealth gap, uh, you know, diminishment. Well, well, certainly. I mean, and that's going to be the case no matter where. I mean, again, if we talk about Chapel Hill, which is probably close to 25% African American, I mean, there are numerous students there who, you know, really can't afford, you know, their education. So it's it's not just HBCU. I mean, today with integration, there are African American students at Duke all over the place at major universities, and many of them cannot afford the tuition of a Duke or Wake Forest. And so, um, unless they're on scholarship, and if they lose that scholarship, they have a, a staggering amount of debt for what mm -hmm. they may be getting a degree in. So, um, so no, that wealth gap, the, the racial wealth gap, uh, is not going to be resolved by uh, the funds that are coming from the federal government because we're already in a desperate situation. I mean, A&T is a major part of the Greensboro community and the Triad community. We were a leader in uh, uh, having shots, giving shots to people in the Greensboro community uh, for uh, vaccines for uh, COVID and uh, getting information out to the community. Uh, we have an Alzheimer's uh, Institute where we work with African-American mm -hmm. families. So mm -hmm. we, we are a major part of the Greensboro community and beloved by the Greensboro community and Absolutely. always out front and Absolutely. leading in our community and in our state and in our nation. So, uh, so no, we can't, it's like, to me, it's apples and oranges. We've always, again, taken sticks and stones to create great leaders and people who are very successful. We don't have the resources of a Duke or a Carolina or some of the other major um, institutions, but we've taken the resources that we have and we've managed them well and we've produced quality students who have gone on to be very successful. Well, that and is they, clear. Uh, that is absolutely clear. And Jesse, this emergency relief funding that the schools, uh, could apply to funds uh, owed them, uh, but not necessarily to federal student loans. So is there any way to go after that debt? Well, right now, I think the, the problem is that everything is tied to COVID, right? So we had to change the way that we did our academics. We had to convert to Zoom classes. Uh, and there was a cost to that. There's also a penalty to those people who didn't have internet accessibility. So what this does is try to at least allow or patch together some relief for the students in the current time. 
the hope here is that if you have these uh, additional grant funds and students are able to receive those, that they may not necessarily need to take out the additional federal funding uh, that they would normally take out. Uh, but right now, there doesn't seem to be any consensus on uh, any kind of alleviation of the student loan debt. And I think that's something that is going to be the issue of, of tomorrow. This week marks the 56th anniversary of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. It was signed on August 4th, 1965, and as many of us know, less than 50 years later, in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down a crucial element of that law, the requirement that those states with a history of discrimination obtain federal approval for new laws on voting rights. Since that time, groups have pushed to reinstitute that provision through the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and also S-1, the For the People Act. I'm going to open up with you, uh, Courtney. You know, the black church was on the front lines leading the fight for voting rights and for justice in the 1960s. Where do you think the political influence of the black church stands today? Well, I think that's such a good question because I feel like there is definitely, there was a, there is a lag in the way for many years in the way that the black church had shown, showed up for activism, but I feel like there's definitely a resurgence happening. Um, the the march that you saw in Graham last year, the march to the polls, was actually led by a pastor. And he was one of the first people who were arrested. And I think it's important to understand that this new generation of um, faith leaders is very, very much concerned with the rights of their peers, whether that be criminal justice issues and police brutality, whether that be issues of housing, issues of poverty, and also, of course, issues of voting rights. They are put, they are in the same spirit as John Lewis, and they are putting themselves out there. And all the great um, ministers that we have out there right now leading the way are elders like Reverend Barber, um, Reverend Jesse Jackson, mm -hmm. and others. We've decided, you know what, we have a faith that includes activism, and they're getting out there, and they are doing their part. And Dr. Smallwood, there is this, um idea that it's the moral imperative that is driving um, policy um, today, but we're dealing with a very different environment and a very different legislature. So what hope do you have for the passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and also for uh, the For the People Act? They, they've been out there for some time now. The those are very difficult questions because um, a person, you know, growing up in the era that I grew up in, uh, late 70s and 80s, uh, early early 80s, um, I would never have thought we, would, as a nation, would be where we are today. Hmm. I mean, there was a lot of optimism uh, with integration and, and so forth. That there was just a lot of optimism in the 80s and 90s. Um, if the nation does not work to resolve this polarization that's existing in the country. Um, it's going to be difficult for us to move any type of legislation forward. And, you know, we, and with the pandemic and the other things that we're confronted with in the future, infrastructure, you know, that which, that which does need to be repaired, education, uh, like you said, again, the criminal justice system, we have very difficult issues that need to be resolved. And um, if we don't, you know, we have to find a way. I, I, can't, I don't have a short answer for you. I do work personally. I try to work, you know, with groups of all backgrounds and 
uh, of all political you know, persuasions to help people understand the old way in which things were done, whether it's here in North Carolina, particularly here in North Carolina, uh, was that people had an understanding and a consensus that what was being done was for the uh, best interests of the state of North Carolina, whether we were talking about funding education, our university systems, or whether we were talking about our K through 12. And there was a consensus among Democrats and Republicans and amongst many people in the state that uh, these things you know, are necessary. The roads, building good roads in North Carolina, we became known as the good roads state. So it's, it's important, but now we've changed, we've doubled in size. Uh, we have some of the same political divisions that exist in other, uh, other states, um, but we have to stay, in the case of North Carolina, we have to stay true to what brought us to where we are today. Absolutely, and, and, and that's a very honest assessment, very honest kind of perspective um, to share with us. Jesse, what are your hopes for passing either pieces of these legislation? So I think the degree of partisanship that we've seen over the past, uh, really the past four years, um, we kind of know what the result is going to be. There's going to be a large mobilization, a large effort to ensure that uh, black people essentially don't get the rights that they should have, that we already have fought for over and over and over again. And honestly, I mean, it may be controversial, but sometimes it gets tiring and exhausting fighting for scraps that we should already have, right? So at the same time, I love seeing that black churches and black movements and Black Lives Matter and everybody coming together to push movements and force these questions and force these conversations. But the problem is until you have the numbers, uh, everything that we do, we always have to have a coalition of allies and support. And it's, it's very difficult for us to get our basic needs because what happens is everybody else chips away from what we need to get what they want and leaves us with, with nothing, answering and fighting for the same question. Questions. So I want to be optimistic, but at the same time, I, I watch CNN and PBS. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate that, and you've all been so honest, and I appreciate you being a part of the program. Jesse McCoy, Courtney Napier, uh, Dr. Arwen Smallwood, thank you so much for your time today and for your insights. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.